Well, in his book, A Complete Guide to Guys, humorous Dave Barry says this, one of the biggest problems that guys have is that a lot of people, and here I'm referring to women, think that guys don't have any problems. What problems can guys have, he goes on to say. Women are always saying, just out of earshot. Guys don't worry about relationships. They don't care whether windows have any kind of window treatments. They can't see dirt. They can't get pregnant. They're supposed to have facial hair. I didn't write this, all right? I'm just reading it. They can wear basically the same outfit for their entire lives. They can wear it to work. They can wear it to dinner. They can wear it to church. They can wear it to the theater. They can wear it to parties and weddings. And they can even be buried in it. And last but not least, all their socks are the same color. (laughs) I used to work for a pastor that literally all his socks were the same color. He told me this. He said in staff meeting one day, once every two years, he said, I just take my whole sock drawer and I empty it into the trash can and I go out and buy all new socks. And they're all the same color and that way if they get missed, it doesn't matter because they're all the same socks, they're the same color and everything just works out fine. Can I get an amen? Isn't that just how it works? See? It's great being a guy. It's great to be a guy. And all of those things, by the way, might be true, but life is not without its frustrations its disappointments, or its challenges. And if you're here this morning, no matter how great you think it is being a guy, I think you would agree with me that as great as some of those things are, it is difficult at times as well to be a man. It's difficult to be a husband. It's difficult to be a father. In a world that tells us that there's a certain way that we need to be, a certain way that we need to behave, and then we read the infallible, unchanging Word of God, and it gives us a standard which is much different. Sometimes it's tough being a guy. I know one of the greatest privileges of my life, being a man, is being a dad. And I remember well the night that my oldest son, Jordan, was born, August 27, 1992. Diana had had seven ultrasounds, seven ultrasounds, and after seven ultrasounds, they were convinced that we were going to have a little girl. And so Diana, both of, both of us are planners. Uh, we like to think ahead, and so we planned ahead, right? We had the girl diapers. I didn't really even know there was a difference. Quite frankly, now I understand that there is. We had the girl diapers. We had the nursery prepared. I mean, I'm talking down to the dusty pink carpeting in the nursery, Needless to say, about uh, 10 p.m. that evening on August 27th, I was surprised when I realized that I had a son. And I don't know, but at that particular moment, I was so overwhelmed. I, I guess I thought that since we were having a girl, that the responsibility would be much more on Diana than it would be me. I understood that I needed to be a, a provider, and at some point I needed to interview and shoot guys that had any interest in her. I got all that, okay? I still get that. But I thought, you know, for the most part, she's going to look at Diana, and, and I'm kind of off the hook at least for a period of time. But now, I had a son. And I'll never forget leaving the hospital that night after Diana was settled and Jordan was settled. And I'll never forget leaving the hospital and driving out of the hospital, and, and tears started coming out of my eyes because I realized the incredible responsibility that I had of being a dad, and not just being a dad, but being a dad to a son. There was a little five-pound baby 
that was dependent upon me for his very life to be sustained. And even much more importantly than that was not just that his, that his physical life be sustained, but he was going to look at me and, and the idea about what he had, about what a man was going to be like, that was going to come from me. And it was overwhelming, an incredible privilege, yet an incredible responsibility as well. In our world, there is much talk about legacy, those things that are handed down from us to somebody else. And every man wants to have a legacy. You want to leave a legacy. But how do you make sure that you are leaving a legacy that is of eternal value? We hear talk about legacy all the time, especially at the death of a well-known person or at their retirement of a politician or of an athlete or a successful businessman. But I want to ask you, men, this morning, what will be your legacy? What will be your legacy? What will we remember that we learned from watching your life when you're gone? When you come to the end, and and by the way, there is one thing that we know that's sure, unless Jesus comes back and the cloud's returning for us, that we will die. When, When life comes to an end on this earth, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want others that are surrounding you right now, inside and outside of your family, what do you want them to remember? What do you want to pass on to the next generation? I think you need to be committed to leaving a legacy. You may not leave a lot of wealth. That'll be true for many of us. You may not leave a lot of records on a sports field. I've seen some of you on the sports field, and I know that that won't happen. You've seen me. That's probably not going to happen. I'm not going to be remembered for my softball prowess. I will not be remembered that way. You may, in fact, never be known outside of your little circle of influence. But here's what's true. You can leave a legacy if you strive to be a godly man. The Bible, however, records for us some dangerous statements about what happens when we fail to leave a legacy. The book of Judges chapter 2, listen, you don't need to turn there. Judges chapter 2 verse 10 is probably one of the most sobering verses that's found in all of Scripture. It says this, All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. In other words, that generation died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. There came up a generation after that generation had died, and they didn't know who God was. They really didn't care about God. They didn't have much regard for God. And unlike the previous generation, they were lost. I fear that many men today are headed for the same reality, leaving a generation that does not know or follow hard after God. But since those of us that are here today are here today and we're still breathing, at least I'm assuming that you're all breathing at this particular moment, there's opportunity for change. In fact, I think about this on a weekly basis as I come before you. That any day that you have an opportunity as a man, as a woman, as a middle school student, a high school student to sit here and listen to the word of God be proclaimed, there is yet an opportunity for change. You can decide today on this Father's Day, 2013 men, that today I'm going to change. Today things are going to be different. I'm going to begin to think about my legacy. And even if God only gives you a short time from this day until the time you go to home to be with him, you can leave a legacy. You can leave something that actually matters to the next generation. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm number 128. Psalm 128. 
This is an anonymous psalm. A lot of the psalms we, we see who wrote the psalm. This is one of those anonymous psalms. Bible scholars tell us it was probably composed after the Jewish exile during a time when there was a lot to be discouraged about if you were Jewish, <laughs> right? You'd been taken into captivity. Things were not good. There was a lot of reason to be discouraged. This is a psalm of ascent. It would have been a psalm that would have been sung or recited as they were on their way up to Jerusalem. It's a companion psalm to Psalm 127, and for the sake of time this morning, we won't get into Psalm 127, but it's a companion to that particular psalm. Look at verse 1. It said, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. I love that word, blessing. I wasn't here for the first week of our series. I was in Africa when Matt taught, I think, out of Psalm 1 on our first week. But that word blessed or blessing is found in Psalm 1. It's a great word. In spiritual matters, it has to do with God's particular favor on his people. Because God is generous and he's great and his blessings are generous and great as well. And once you've begun to experience them, they seem to be without limit. And blessing, that word blessing is a unifying word in all of Psalm 128 where in most of our English translation, the word blessed, which is used here, or blessings, or bless, it occurs four times, and only in verses 3 and 6 are those verses without it. And in the Hebrew, there are actually two words which are translated into our English text, blessed or blessing or bless. The first one means happy. I like that translation, that English translation of that Hebrew word asher, which means happy. You could go back to Psalm 1 and you could say, happy is the man who does this. You remember as we get into the New Testament and as Jesus is teaching and the Sermon on the Mount, consistently he said, blessed, blessed, happy is the man. And then there's a second word which is just simply translated blessed or could be translated as well fulfilled or satisfied. So what does it mean then to be Happy or satisfied or fulfilled is everyone who fears the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Now, most Bible teachers are very quick to point out that it does not mean that we are afraid of the Lord. There are some pastors, however, that love to teach that. They love to teach that you ought to be fearful of God as a child who's being beaten by a, a, an unruly father who just beats on him with, with a belt or with a stick. Some pastors would give us the idea that that's who God is, that we ought to fear God and, and we ought to fear him because he's going to beat on us all the time. What's incredibly unfortunate is that some of us grew up in environments where we've gotten the idea that that's who God is. And that when Scripture says we are to be fearful of God, that that's what it means. Just kind of, oh, don't hit me again. I, I messed up. Don't beat me again. And yet that's not what this text or others in Scripture are referring to. The intent of the word is reverence or respect. In fact, Webster's Ninth Collegiate Dictionary calls respect a profound reverence or awe, especially towards God. Therefore, fear, at least in, in the sense of holy awe, is not far from what we're talking about here as a proper God-directed attitude. One Bible teacher said it this way. I want to read this to you. God must be taken seriously. He must not be trifled with. He must be as he actually is, the center of everything we are, we think, or we aspire to do. He must be our starting point for every project, the strength we seek for every valuable endeavor, the one we earnestly desire to please and honor as our goal. 
There really is no point at which the profound difference between those that are without Jesus as their personal Savior and those who are truly God's people is more radical than on this particular theme. So if you don't pay attention to anything else that I say today, in fact, I would go so far as to say, if you don't pay attention to anything else that we talk about in our series in Psalms over the next several weeks, pay attention to this. There is no greater profound difference between those who are without Jesus as their personal Savior and those who have Jesus as their Savior as how we view this thing called the fear of the Lord. For those who think as the world does, you see, God is just a plaything of the mind. God is just something that we do on Sunday. We come in here, we God talk, right? We speak certain things, we sing certain songs, And for those who think as the world does, that's what God is. He's a plaything. It's just mere God talk. For the world, the only meaningful reality is what they can see, what they can feel, or what is measured by their senses. Now, this term secular, we refer to people like that as secularist. Secular comes from a Latin word which means this age, people that are of this age. So people who are secular as opposed to being spiritual are people whose mental boundaries are limited by this time and this place. Now hang with me for just a second, all right? I know you can get confused very easily. So if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your thinking is not limited to the boundaries of this place or this time. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God is the center of your world. Without him, you do not exist. Without him, you don't have a purpose for living, and you recognize that. See, that's true for all of us, right? (laughs) That God is ultimately the reason why we exist. Whether we acknowledge that or not doesn't change the fact that it's true. However, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you are to acknowledge that if you're a secularist, It simply means that all you see is what's here and what's now. And since you can't see God, since you can't wrap your arms around him, you don't really think much about him. Francis Schaeffer called secularism operating in a closed universe, a universe containing nothing spiritual, nothing beyond itself. And I fear that for many of us, that's the way that we live our lives. As if there is nothing beyond what we see right here, right now. Let me stop just for a moment, especially you men. It's Father's Day. I want you to think about this today. Does that mark your life? That you are simply living for the things that you see right now, and you see nothing beyond right now. You're living totally to accomplish everything that you can see on this planet, but storing up very little treasure in heaven. See, Christian thinking is altogether different. In fact, Harry Blamerus, an Englishman who was a student and then friend of C.S. Lewis, wrote a book called The Christian Mind in which he said this, to think secularly is to think within a frame of reference bounded by the limits of our life on earth. It's to keep, keep one's calculations rooted in this worldly criteria. He goes on to say this, though, to think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related directly or indirectly to man's eternal destiny as the redeemed and chosen child of God. And so that's what the psalmist is saying that we should do. Blessed is the man, blessed is the person, blessed is the individual. And by the way, this is not just simply true of men. It's true of women. It's true of kids who have trusted Christ as their Savior. It's true of a middle school student, a high school student, a college student. Happy is the person 
who understands and has a proper view of God. Let me ask you this morning, do you have a proper view of God? Merely thinking about God, by the way, is not enough. In fact, if you look again at verse 1, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who also walks in his ways. It's not nearly enough just to think about God. That's not enough. Right thinking leads to right acting, which is why the psalm goes on to say that those who are blessed are not merely those who fear the Lord, but those who actually walk in his ways. It's interesting how many people that I can talk with on a weekly basis, especially men, I interact, as you can imagine, with a lot of men. I sit at lunch with them, and they can tell me about these things, how much they love Jesus, how how important their relationship is with Jesus, and yet there is no tangible evidence. There's no visible evidence that they actually walk with God, that they, as the psalmist says here, that they walk in his ways. If you have your Bibles, flip back real quickly to Genesis chapter 5. You can read some there as I'm talking here just for a moment. But in Genesis chapter 5, we see uh, several men mentioned. One of them that's mentioned is Enoch. And I'm I'm particularly interested in Enoch because uh, we see him again in Hebrews chapter 11, that Enoch was a man who walked with God. In fact, in Genesis 5, when we meet him for the first time, we're told twice in the space of just four verses that Enoch walked with God. When Enoch lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah, And after he became the father of Methuselah, Scripture says Enoch walked with God for another 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So altogether, Enoch lived for 365 years. It's an amazing thing that for most of us, uh, there might be a few exceptions, I doubt it, but for most of us, we won't live to be 365, right? You agree with that, right? We won't live to be 365 years of age. It's amazing to me that the Bible says that Enoch walked with God for 365 years. I asked myself this week, why is it that it's so difficult, guys, for us to walk with God for 75 or 80 or maybe even 90 years? Why is it so difficult? We know that it's possible. Enoch walked with God for 365 years. doesn't just say he went into the temple, he kind of met with the priest, he offered sacrifices. No, it says that he actually believed it so much that he walked with God. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, it says that Enoch was commended as one who pleased God. He feared God, he walked in his ways, and he was commended by God. I don't know about you men, but in the end, on the epitaph on my particular tombstone, if I have one, If it just says he walked with God, would that be satisfying enough for you? Or or are you storing up so much treasure for yourself here on earth that you want to be able to have your kids say, well, look, Dad Dad left me an inheritance. I have some money. I I have a house at the beach. I have a house at the mountains. You know, he left me his classic car in the garage. He left me this stock account. Is that what you're storing yourself up for? So that the epitaph on your tombstone would say, he left us a lot of stuff. Or would it be preferred that it just say, he walked with God. For 75 years, for 80 years, for 85 years, Dad walked with God. Now, the remaining verses of Psalm 128, it won't take me that long to get through the remaining verses. The remaining verses give us three ways in which we will see the blessing, the favor of God on our lives if we fear him and if we walk in his ways. 
Remember again, the synonyms for this word that's translated blessing here are satisfied, fulfilled, happy. I like all those words. I mean, if you told me today, if you said, how, so how is it Father's Day 2013? And I said, I am fulfilled, I am satisfied, and I am happy. You'd go, things are good, right? There are three blessings the psalmist gives us in particular if we fear God and we walk in his way. The first blessing is this. Your work is going to be blessed. Look at verse 2. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you'll be happy and it will be well with you. Now, it's common in our culture to complain about our jobs, isn't it? And about work in general. It's always a joy when I meet somebody and I go, so what do you do? And they tell me what they do and they go, and I love it. I love what I do. More often than not, as I'm sitting with somebody at lunch or talking with them or asking them what they do, they tell me what they do, and then they kind of go on to complain about their job and about their boss and the hours that they have to work. But there's some people that really do enjoy working. The norm, I think, however, is that we complain about Monday and we live only for the weekend and for the next vacation. Psalm 127, in fact, goes on to say, if you flip back there and just look at Psalm 127, that everything we do will be in vain unless the Lord is in it. I would say to many of you this morning who hate your job, you hate what you do, you're not satisfied, you're not fulfilled. The reason that you are not satisfied, you're not fulfilled, you're not happy, you're not experiencing joy is simply because you do not do what you do in the name of Jesus. I really believe that if you do it in the name of Jesus for his glory, I believe your attitude will change towards work. The builder, in, verse, in Psalm 127, it says the builder will build in vain, the watchman will watch in vain, getting up early or going to bed late will be in vain unless it is done in the Lord. And then Psalm 128 starts from another perspective of this truth. And, and here's what it is, just very simply put, that when God has his rightful place in our lives the place that he's supposed to have, our work will be satisfying, it will be fulfilling, it will produce great joy. When you understand that your work is more than just a paycheck, I've heard pastors talk about how, you know, well, you know, hey, what you do at IBM, you know, it's just not really that significant. I mean, all you're doing is working on computers, and at the end of the day, what's really important is what you do here in ministry. Dumb pastors say things like that, Okay. What you do tomorrow morning at IBM or at SAS or at that restaurant or at that bank, or God cares about every single thing that you're doing tomorrow. If you're digging a ditch, you can dig that ditch for his honor and for his glory. God cares about it. God doesn't just simply care about the ministry that you perform when you are together here on Sunday morning or what you do supposedly that is ministry. I think that your job tomorrow morning can be so full of ministry that you look at me and you compare yourself to my week and you say, I'm the one that really did ministry this week. I really believe that to be true. When we understand that our work is more than just a paycheck, it's an opportunity for us to live out the reality of the Christian life. You know how many people you'll go to work with tomorrow who will not understand and will not see any benefit in what they do? You know, there's going to be a project at work tomorrow. Some of you already got that look on your face. You know what I'm talking about. And people are going to come in and go, how was your weekend? The weekend was great. If I didn't have to come back here on Monday morning because they know that big project is, is going to be there and they're going to have to work on that project. And, and if you went in and went, woohoo, I'm so excited, great weekend, but I couldn't wait to get back here on Monday. Let's, let's just put our arms around this project and let's do it. 
start looking at you and going, are you insane? That's how we have a tendency to look. But do you realize that project that you despise right now, that task that is at work waiting you tomorrow morning, that you're despising doing, that if you do that task to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, the way that you handle those things can be such a testimony. The way that you handle success in the workplace can say that Jesus is at the center of your life. Our work is simply another opportunity for us to do what we were created to do, and that is to bring honor and glory to our creator as his creation. And by the way, our spiritual work, I believe, too, will thrive. In fact, Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'm telling you what you do in the work of the ministry, same thing. It's not in vain. You go, but I was back there, and this kid was wiping his nose on me and doing all. I don't really think Jesus cared about that. Let me tell you, he did. He didn't. He took note of it. The guy who fears the Lord, the guy who gives God the rightful place in his life, and the guy who walks then as Enoch walked in the ways of the Lord, your work is going to be blessed. I believe that. I hope that some interactions that we have over the next several weeks, some of you now, some of you guys especially, are going to be scared to go to lunch with me, and I say, so how's work? You're going to go, it's great. It's fantastic. <laughs> Woohoo! Blessing is mine. I am fulfilled and satisfied. All right? Don't do it like that. All right? Just have a different attitude tomorrow. When you realize that your life is much more than what you do Monday to Friday, when you realize that, you'll do it to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Number two, your family will be blessed. Your family will be blessed. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but it's easy to look at the Bible's common description of domestic joy with somewhat of skepticism. You ever done that? Train up a child the way he should go, and when he's older, don't depart from it. Okay, I'll just train him, and then he'll be perfect, right? Have you noticed that's not the way that it works? Anybody besides me? Great. Three other people. That's awesome. It's fantastic. The rest of you need to get on your knees and confess. You ever read that verse, ladies, in Proverbs 31, that her children rise up and they bless her? And you thought to yourself, when's that going to happen to me? My kids have never risen up and blessed me. I mean, the Bible says that if I'm this kind of a woman, I mean, I work hard. I make them nice meals. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm making candles at the gate. That's what the lady did in Proverbs 31. I'm doing all those things, yet my kids aren't getting up in the morning and going, Mom, bless you. I think sometimes we have a tendency to look at these things in Scripture in a somewhat skeptical manner. Here's the problem, that families are made up of sinners. You didn't know that one, did you? You're glad I came here today because that's the problem. Now, you knew that. Families are made up of sinful people, and sin disrupts even the best relationships. And Psalm 128 is not promising that there will never be problems. Just like in verse 2, it's not promising material blessing without the frustrations and the pain of physical work. But it is true that there will be kids that rebel and go a different way. There will be some of us in this body that will have spouses that will choose to do things that are totally contrary to what you believed they believed and they said they believed and they will do bad things and it will make your life miserable. But generally speaking as a rule, when you do things God's way, 
blessing comes. There's going to be problems. There's going to be frustrations. There's going to be disappointments. But the person who truly has God at the center of his life will find true joy and satisfaction with his wife and with his children. Look at verse 3. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. I like that. At first thought, you go, I don't really know what that means, but that sounds good. The image doesn't mean simply that a wife will produce lots of children. All right? However, it is all the way through Scripture. It is thought to be a blessed thing, a satisfying, a fulfilling thing if there are lots of children. In fact, we see how important childbearing is if you look at the dismay that Sarah experienced before she had Isaac. And you look at at Rachel and Hannah, other mothers. But bearing many children is part of that picture, but it's not the whole thing. Actually, in the Bible, the vine with its grapes and the wine that is made from them is a symbol of refreshment and lavish enjoyment. By the way, guys, including sexual enjoyment, all right? It's true. That's what the relationship, the psalmist says, when you have a right relationship with God, when he's properly aligned in your life, you're going to experience joy in the workplace and you're going to experience joy in your marriage as well. Wine stands for harvest, abundance at the end of a long, dry summer. Proverbs 104, or Psalm 104, verse 15 says, It gladdens the heart of man. The psalm is promising that even though there's hard day-to-day work in the fields, that the laboring man, when he comes home, if God has a proper perspective in his life, if he is walking in the ways of God, that when he gets home, his wife is going to produce for him incredible satisfaction, fulfillment, and great joy. Now you say, "Mm, I've been doing all those things and it ain't happening at my house, all right? Well, remember I said, obviously, that there are exceptions to that. There are times when, because of sinful people, things don't work out as God intends for them to be. But I will tell you, if you're not experiencing that, men, in your marriage, more often than not, I'm just speaking the truth from my standpoint, uh, there is a greater than 50% chance that most of the problem is on you. And if you will change your ways and if you will start doing the things and being the husband that God intends for you to be, you will experience that. And So the psalmist says that you come home and because you've got God in his rightful place in your life, after working hard, you come home to your happy, awesome wife. Now, if that doesn't make a man blessed or happy, satisfied, fulfilled, I don't know what does. And i got to say to you that uh, on a regular basis, I come home and that's what I experience. And by the way, it's not just because I fear God and I walk in his ways. I just have an awesome wife. That's part of how that happens. I could be really bad and I'd probably still experience that because, of, because I'm married out of my league. I get that. I understand that. All right? But there's nothing like that. I tell people in my life that all the time. I tell guys, there's nothing like coming home and... and leaving a wife who who loves you and cares about you and coming home and finding that same wife and waking up the next morning just like that. And the psalmist says, if you fear God and you walk in his ways, you do the things that you're supposed to do, you're going to have that kind of a relationship with your spouse. Now, the analogy of the vine and the wife is pretty easy to understand, and that's a good one. But how about this next one? Your children are like olive plants around your table. I've said my kids were like a lot of things around my table. I've never said... 
that they were like olive plants. Here's what you need to understand. Let me explain. Olive trees take a long time to mature and become profitable. Let me just say that again. (laughs) Olive trees take a long time to mature and become profitable. Now can I get an amen? amen? They are patiently cultivated. I know this not because I have tended to olive plants, okay? because I've read about this. They're patiently cultivated. They become quite valuable as time goes by, and they continue to produce a profitable crop for centuries. I'm looking at this going, I don't have to worry about retirement. As long as this comes true in my life, my olive plants are going to continue to be profitable for centuries, and I'm not going to last that long, so I'm good, right? The longer, perhaps, that they live, the greater the fruit-producing becomes in that tree or in that plant. So the psalmist says that our kids are like olive plants around our table. It's going to take some time for them to become mature. But let me give you this. Most of the time it does happen. Isn't that good? Good word of encouragement that you received today. Most of the time it does happen. After being a youth pastor for as long as I was, um, God gave me so many pictures of that. To see kids, I mean, some of them are sitting right here this morning. I won't embarrass them. But to see kids, you look at them and you go, this kid's going to be in jail before 14. And now you look at him and, and he's got a little baby and he's loving on his wife. And you go, it just happens. It just takes some time, but it happens. It takes some time for maturity, but it does happen. I want to tell you this. If you are consistently teaching the truth and you are consistently living out that truth in front of your kids... I believe that most of the time, again, there are exceptions because we're dealing with sinful people, but I believe most of the time it's going to happen. Maturity will take place. I always note that in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, it says, when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now, if you're like me, I'd like at about 16 to go, okay, I'm convinced of this, and I'm going to live this way, right? I mean, how many would sign up for that, if I could guarantee you that? I'm 16, and I'm going to live this way. But I've watched enough kids go through adolescence and into their college years and graduate from college to understand that there's a lot of truth in these wisdom words in Proverbs 22, and that is when they are old, they'll not depart. It's interesting. I don't want to embarrass him, but uh, uh, John Abel's testimony is somewhat like that. John just finally got it. And I'm sure, his mom and dad are here this morning, I'm sure at at some point you were just going, what? I mean, is this guy ever going to get it? And what an incredible privilege, isn't it, for you to sit here as a father and as a mother and know that he got it. See, that happens. And don't take for granted that just because your son or your daughter is where they are right now that they're always going to be there. The Spirit of God can do incredible things in their life. He wants to do incredible things in their life. You be faithful to teach. You be faithful not just to talk about it, but to model those principles And I guarantee you there will be many of you, even those of you that have some kids that are making poor decisions right now, and you will come back in the future and you will go, it's worth it. Just like an olive tree, it takes time to mature. Now here's the thing, dads. You're not always going to have the right answers. You figure that out? You're not always going to have the right answers. It reminds me of a story that I read about a father who was at the beach with his children when his four-year-old son ran up to him and he grabbed his hand and led him to the shore where there was a seagull that was laying dead in the sand. And he looked up at his dad and he said, Daddy, what happened to him? The son asked. And he, he, the, the dad said he died and he went to heaven. 
And the boy thought about it for a moment, and then he looked at his dad and said, did God throw him back down? The first answer, not a problem. The second answer, now you got some theological issues that are mingling just below the surface. Here's the point. You're not always going to have the answers, right? And I found, as a guy who likes to talk, gets paid to talk, sometimes the best thing you can do is not talk. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just live it out because you don't necessarily always know the answers. Kent Hughes, the author of Disciplines of a Godly Man, which men, I've mentioned this to you many times if you've not read that book. You need to get it, you need to read it, you need to study it, you need to apply those principles to your life because they're biblical principles. Kent Hughes wrote this, we need to be students of the word. You cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. If you spend no time in the word of God and you wonder why you can't articulate biblical principle to your son or your daughter, shame on you. It's because you do not spend time in the word. You don't know the word. And if you don't know it, you can't be profoundly influenced or influence other people by that which you do not know. Here's the last thing, real quickly. Not only will our work be blessed and our families will be blessed, but our city will be blessed. I love this. Look at verse 4. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Just a reiteration in case you didn't get it in verse 1. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Real quickly, men who live with Jesus at the center of their lives not only experience God's blessing in their family, in their workplace, but also in their larger circle of influence. There are some Christians that have decided to withdraw themselves from their cities, from their towns, from their neighborhoods, anything that has a secular responsibility to it. There's something in conservative evangelicalism right now that is very prevalent, which says, hey, we'll just, we'll educate our kids at home. We'll make sure we have cows and pigs and chickens right there so that we don't have to go to the grocery store and, and we'll do just that and we'll kind of live in this cocoon and somehow that's a spiritual thing. Let me tell you, that's not a spiritual thing. We are not called here to simply live in a cocoon. We are called here as Christ followers, as people whose lives have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ to live out in front of a world what they so desperately need to see lived out. And that is the transformational nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 29, Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in numbers there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. These were Jews who weren't living in Jerusalem, the holy city. They were living in pagan foreign places. And yet the prophet Jeremiah is saying, go there and be influential. If Jesus is at the center of our lives, our very existence, then we're going to seek to influence our neighborhoods and our cities. And I hope you'll do that. I'm thankful we have a lot of families in our church, a lot of men in our church that are seeking to be an influence in your city, in your neighborhood. You're involved in secular organizations. Keep doing it. Be salt and light. We're not to retreat from our culture. We are to invade our culture and live out the reality of a changed life. 
Well, the Bible records at the end of the life of Abraham in a truly remarkable way what it looks like for a man to fear God and walk in his ways. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 8 says this, Abraham breathed his last and he died in a ripe old age. He was an old man and he was satisfied with life and he was gathered to his people. I preached on this last Father's Day. I don't know if you remember it, but I love that. I love that. Probably one of my favorite verses in the book of Genesis anyway. He died in a ripe old age. 175, by the way, to be exact. But he was satisfied. How can anybody be satisfied who's lived to be 175? I mean, you know, you got to believe that there's a lot of stuff he can't do at 175, right? And yet Scripture records that he was satisfied with life, that he loved it. He was fulfilled. And when God came back for him, it wasn't like, oh, no, I just want to. No, he's like, I'm ready. Because written on my tombstone is going to be, he walked with God. He was satisfied. In his book, Legacy of Love, author Tim Kimmel says this, you cannot leave character in a trust account. You cannot write your values into a will. You cannot bank traits like courage, honesty, and compassion in a safety deposit box. He goes on to say, true epitaphs are not carved in stone. They're carved in the souls and memories of men and women and boys and girls. Guys, let me say to you on this Father's Day that here's what we need. We need strong men who reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and by doing that, expect God's great reward, his blessing on our lives, where we are satisfied, where we are fulfilled, where we experience great joy. Let's pray. Father, you know how desperately I want that to be true of my life, and yet there are days when I'm not sure it's happening. I want to be known as a man who fears you, that I have proper alignment with you in my life as the center, and that as Enoch walked with God, that I walk with God. I want it to be written on my tombstone. He walked with God. And Father, I pray for these men in this room. As we started today, I admit it, it's, it's, they're, they're hard days being a man. It's incredible responsibility to provide an economy that's so fragile, to shepherd our wives and our kids in a world that is so secularized, that tells us and sends us messages which are so very different to the truth that we know that's found in the authority of the Word of God. And yet, God, while it's difficult, it's possible because you haven't left us here alone. You've left us here as followers of Jesus with the Spirit of God who works in our life and enables us to be the men that you want us to be. And so I pray for my friends this morning. I don't beat up on them on this Father's Day. I challenge them to, to think about the end, even if they're at the beginning or in the middle, to think about the end, to think about going to be with Jesus, satisfied, fulfilled, because we feared God and we walked in his ways. I pray that that will be true of men who call Northwest Community Church their church home. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.